Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Being a good girl is the social self that develops once you start going to school, within family systems, with your parents. It's like we start to notice what gives us rewards. We get rewarded for being quiet. We get rewarded for being well-behaved. We get rewarded for getting the good grades, for winning the trophy or the spelling bee. So we notice like, wow, every time I do this behavior, I get a social reward. People like me more. My parents like me more. My teachers like me more. Like, this is great. You know, I should just keep doing this. So then the good girl starts to develop. That was Maho Molfino on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Psychologist Off the Clock is supported by Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis Continuing Education, you can really transform your clients' lives. You can learn how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And it's really the premier provider of continuing education for clinical professionals. You can earn CEs if you're a psychologist, social worker, counselor, behavior analyst, MFT, physician, nurse, and more. And Praxis has both on-demand courses and live online courses. Right now, you can get Act Immersion or Act in Practice with Steve Hayes, as well as Act One with Matt Boone and Focused Act for Brief Interventions with Kirk Strosall and Patty Robinson. Those are the on-demand courses. And live self-care and radical healing among BIPOC therapists on the front lines, culturally tailored act, fundamentals of DBT, act in behavior analysis, superhero therapy, and more. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you'll get a coupon code for the live courses there. Check us out at offtheclockpsych.com. I'm here with Debbie to introduce today's episode with Maho Malfino, who is the author of Break the Good Girl Myth. 
And Maho has a podcast called Heroin, as in the feminine version of hero, not the drug. And she likes to start her podcast by asking her guests what they were like as a little girl. And Debbie, I was curious when you listened to the episode, what you were like as a little girl before all of these rules and myths were put upon you and how that's changed for you as you, you know, how it changed for you when you went into adolescence or young adulthood and how that's changed for you now closer to middle age, shall we say? I think middle age is fair at this point in my life. That's accurate. Don't worry. I can embrace this. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, I, you tell your story in the episode, of course. I mean, I grew up, I was a Colorado mountain girl, you know, I had dirty knees and I was, you know, outdoors playing all the time. And I think, you know, as I went through some challenges, you know, when I was a kid, my parents got divorced and I think I became an adolescent girl. And There's some feminist scholars out there who talk about how adolescent girls often lose their voice a bit. Mm. And I do think reflecting back on my own experience that I think that I did what she talks about in this episode, which is that I was reinforced for playing by the rules and for, you know, doing well in school and studying hard. And I think I was socially savvy enough to, over time, to really learn that if you play the game socially and you kind of fit that mold of, you know, being likable and easy to be around and doing, you know, playing by the rules that you get really reinforced. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that over time I learned to do that. And sometimes it was for sure at the expense of my own, needs or speaking up about things that were important to me or, you know, sort of carving my own path or setting boundaries for myself. Right. Yes. I so relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I think, you know, now that I'm in this middle-aged phase, I definitely find myself speaking out a little bit more directly about things in a way that I probably wouldn't have 10 years ago because I'd be too worried about how that would be perceived. I don't know about you, Jill. You're you're also in that middle age zone. Have you? I am. And, and yes, I 100%. And I talk a little in the episode about how I used to resonate with, she has five myths that she talks about, which we'll get into, but I used to be very much a sacrificer and then thought, you know, no, like these cultural rules that women are supposed to put men and children above themselves, above all else is like kind of BS. And that's not necessary. You can still be available to them without subjugating all of your own needs. And, you know, same with just people pleasing in general. I have worked very hard over the years to do much less of that. Although I learned from taking Maho's quiz that I need to work on it a little bit more. So why is it that you think you've changed? Like what's behind the change for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a couple things. I think part of it is just getting really knowledgeable about the, you know, patriarchal system in which we live and feminism and social oppression. Like my, my eyes are just wide open and have been like probably since 2016. Um, and so that's a big part of it. And then the other part of it is being a part of several women's communities. So the four of us on the podcast, my team at my clinic, the women's special interest group in our organization, ACBS. So, you know, being part of women's communities has like really helped me to be brave. I think that like just having the support of that community behind me has given me a lot of courage. So what about you? What what do you attribute your changes to? Well, I resonate with what you're saying, just having the support having your wolf pack, you know, we both love (laughs) the book wolf pack, having your wolf Mm -hmm. pack and just those friends who support you and who stand by you and who encourage you and are there for you even during the tough times or the mistakes along the way is a piece of it. I think the other piece is, I mean, frankly, I just get tired of the personal toll of bending over backwards to make other people happy all the time, because I think that burns me out after a while. I just get fed up with it. Yeah. And you know, actually getting fed up with it can lead toward positive change. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I kept thinking about during this episode, she talks about speaking up and the discomfort of that. And I work a lot with my clients on a sort of communication 
it's something I work on in my own life all the time because it's hard. I actually just wrote a blog post on my webpage about assertive communication and finding that sweet spot of asserting your own needs more, but in a values consistent way. And I have to say, I think that as women, sometimes speaking up has it well for everyone, but for women, especially there can be a consequence to that. Like when we do speak up, sometimes it gets a reaction from people mm-hmm. and it's, it is an act of courage. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's interesting because I think many times we avoid assertive communication because we fear the consequences. And then when we actually do it, they sometimes don't happen. Or even if they do, they're not as bad as we think and we can handle it. And that's one half of that story. But then the other half is, and we know this from Alicia Menendez episode about the likability trap, that there are likability penalties when women are assertive. And those same penalties don't exist for men. And so it feels like this tightrope that we have to walk. Like, don't assume there's always going to be a negative consequence or you might never get brave enough to be assertive. You know, test it out. Let your experience be the guide. But like you were saying before, even if there is a negative consequence, like being fed up and pissed off about those things, like that can really sometimes mobilize effective action. Negative consequences aren't a reason not to do it. Yeah. You have to be willing sometimes to have that discomfort. Absolutely. Well, everybody enjoy this episode with Maho Malfino. Hey, everybody. It's Jill here, and I am so excited about today's guest. I've been waiting to talk to her for quite some time. I have Maho Malfino with me today, and she is the author of a book called Break the Good Girl Myth. And this resonated so much with me. And I think it's going to resonate with many of you as well. So Maho is an Argentine-American author, designer, and women's leadership expert. She's the host of the Heroine podcast featuring top female leaders, creatives, and visionaries. Her leadership program, Ignite, guides women to design and share a creative dream with the world. She has a master's in learning design and technology from Stanford University and a bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in cultural studies from McGill University. She lives in California with her husband. Welcome, Maho. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I've been listening to your podcast, Heroine, and I know that you like to start every interview by asking your guests, what were you like as a little girl? And I thought, what an absolutely perfect place to start our interview together. So (laughs) Maho, tell me, what were you like as a little girl? I was creative, imaginative, free-spirited. My grandmother likes to say I talk to butterflies and I was just a dreamer at heart. I was also very well behaved. I was not a troublemaker at all. Uh, You know, my mom has this story of telling my brother and I just to sit quietly and, you know, while she ran an errand and we would just sit there holding hands super quietly. (laughs) (laughs) We just were good kids, you know? Yeah. And so I'm curious what it is that makes you ask people that question. And then, you know, it seems so linked to the book. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how those two things are related. Thanks for asking this. Such a good inquiry. I um, I like to ask my guests this question because it brings them to a, it throws them back and it brings them to a more open place. And also I find in interviews, there's this nice circularity that happens. We talk about the journey. And then one of the things that I notice is that when women go through a journey of reclaiming themselves, they often go back to that state of what they were like as a little girl before all the rules and conditions fell on their head. And they go back to that kind of pure native state that they had. So I love that, that full circle moment. (laughs) I think it's really powerful. And it's, I love it. And when I first listened to an episode and heard you ask the question, of course, I was trying to think about like, what was I like as a little girl? And the first images were all about following rules, 
mm-hmm. you know, good grades and all that. And I thought, no, I think the question is, what were you like? Just like you just said, what were you like before mm-hmm. all those rules? And I immediately had this image of like every video that I'm in as a little girl, I'm bouncing and jumping and waving my arms and trying to be the in the center of the video. And often I'm wearing a bathing suit unselfconsciously and not covered yes. up. And I thought that's it. Like that's who I was before. The yes. Yes. I love that. I love that image. Just uninhibited, free, mm-hmm. wanting to express, wanting to connect. So beautiful. Yeah, exactly. So how do you connect that with the book? Maybe we can talk where you talk about five myths in the book and we'll get to those. Um, but I think we should talk about what you mean by being a good girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being a good girl is the social self that develops later afterwards once you start going to school. And, you know, even with within family systems with your parents, it's like we start to notice what gives us rewards. You know, what do we get rewarded for? Mm-hmm. We get rewarded for being quiet. We get rewarded for being well-behaved. We get rewarded for getting the good grades for winning the trophy or the spelling bee. So we notice like, wow, every time I do this behavior, I get a social reward. People like me more. My parents like me more. My teachers like me more. Like, this is great. You know, I should just keep doing this. So then the good girl starts to develop. And really I describe it as like a mask that we put on. And then, and then there's the layer, which I really dig into in the book around patriarchy, which is like, Added to that, we're born as girls in a patriarchal society that values us less than it values boys and men. So you're, it's almost like you feel like you have more to prove. And so you're, you're putting on this mask even more. You're trying to win. You're trying to be perfect. You're trying to please on so many levels, uh, not just your, you know, your parents and your, you know, the church or synagogue uh, you attend. It's like, It's really about trying to align ourselves with the patriarchal structures so that we feel like we are a quote unquote good girl. And then later that becomes a quote unquote good woman or quote unquote good mother. Psychologist Off the Clock is so happy to share with you some upcoming good things with Rick Hansen. He's offering you a 50% off discount on his NeuroDharma online program. This program will guide you through seven practices for revealing the natural goodness in each of us. And if you sign up by May 29th, you'll get a coupon code for 50% off. Go to Off the Clock Psych dot com for that program. And he's also offering a free online event that'll occur between May 21st and 23rd for life after COVID. He's got an incredible lineup with Rick Hansen, Forrest Hansen, and other world-class experts that are going to be sponsored by the Greater Good Science Center to explore our life after COVID, including how we can recover from the last year's wounds, embrace new ways of being, and work towards a bigger future as we re-enter the new world together. So go to our website, Off the Clock Psych, to register for free by May 21st. I love the way that you really dig into the patriarchy. You know, I've read a number of books about gender equality, and of course, the patriarchy is always discussed, but I really appreciated the way you talked about, you know, quieting the patriarchy inside of us and the the messengers. And I think it's a really helpful way to understand this system that has been around that really is predominant in most, if not all cultures, I think you talked about research that there really are not true matriarchs Mm -hmm. around the world. And just like how insidious the Mm -hmm. the system and these messages are. And of course, you know, we hear in certain books, you know, take like a lean in, for example, there's this idea that like we as individuals have to lean in and be at the table and have a voice. And, you know, But then Alicia Menendez talks about that, like, this shouldn't be put on the individual to make these changes. Like, there need to be systemic changes. And and both of those things are true. It's kind of like both and. And what I liked about the way you talked about this in the book is it was less about us as individuals have to be responsible for changing the patriarchy and more about we need to recognize the way the patriarchy is affecting us and learn how to break free so that we can make 
the best choices for ourselves in our own lives so that we can feel empowered and free and really like live our values in terms of the lives that we most want to live. Mm -hmm. You nailed it. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's the system is inside of us. So it's not either or. Yeah. So here we have, we live inside this patriarchy. We live inside this culture. It's very old. We're talking thousands of years. It's extremely global. It's everywhere. It's on our shampoo bottles. It's in our music. It's in our, it's in our uh, school curriculums. It's everywhere. And so, and so as a result, we internalize it as a result, we swallow it and we do so at a very young age without realizing it because we're sponges and then it stays with us in adulthood. And then we wonder as women, like, why do I feel stuck? Why do I feel unfulfilled? Why do I feel dried up? Why am I getting this chronic illness right now? It's like, there are potentially many reasons, but also looking at just how we've been conditioned to, to follow these five good girl myths that I break down in the book and yeah. how that, how we really need to break free from those in order to reclaim that essential self we talked about that you can feel when you tune into yourself as a, as a little girl or what you were like back then. Yeah. It's interesting. And I can't, I think you might actually talk about this in the book. I don't remember, but I talk about it in my book, Be Mighty, which is a book for women struggling with anxiety and worry. And, you know, we know that women and girls as early as age six are twice as likely to be diagnosed with anxiety disorders than men. And if you dig into the research, you know, most of the the hypotheses that they give for why this is are things like men just present differently than women. You know, they're more externalizing, whereas girls are internalizing. But what you very rarely see is the influence of the patriarchy and social oppression. And that, you know, yes, these differences start as early as six, because you are very aware of sexism and bias, at least on a subconscious level, very early on. Like these gender yes. differences are so clear by the age of what, maybe like two or three. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think it it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I was thinking about each of these myths. So let's get into the myths. So there's the myth of rules, the myth of perfection, the myth of logic, the myth of harmony, and the myth of sacrifice. And I was really thinking about the ways to me, this fit with the fact that women tend to have anxiety at double the rates of men. Mm -hmm. So I took the quiz. There's a quiz in the book where you can find out, you know, which of these myths is, how would you put it kind of like most driving Yes. Your behavior. Yes. Which is a, I call it, which is your primary good girl myth right now, which one is, is really the biggest, you could think of it as the biggest blind spot too, that you're, that you're having or so. And the first place you might need to look in terms of starting the process of deconditioning. So what did you get? Yeah. So (laughs) mine was the myth of harmony and that was the top by far. And then the next three other than sacrifice were even Steven and then sacrifice was the lowest. And that's really because I've been working on sacrifice Mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, you know, my husband and one of my very close friends, they joke with me, (laughs) they call me destructively honest, Jill. And then I have another friend who always stands up for me and says, no, she's constructively honest, not destructively. So in a way I was sort of surprised by this because I think of myself as someone who you know, tries to be assertive and express myself. But like when I really dug into it, I realized that as much as I've tried to overcome my people pleasing, it is still quite strong Mm -hmm. and there's still quite a bit of, of work to be done there. So the myth of harmony is, would you agree? Like these are the people pleasers. We prioritize other people's needs and feelings above our own. And typically that comes from a fear of hurting feelings or being judged or rejected. Yes, that is at the crux of harmony. And it's really about avoiding difficult conversations. So avoiding any kind of conflict or confrontation that would be required for a relationship to mature and move on to the next level. And there's just a fear of the other person's response. So are they going to be exactly like I said, are they going to be disappointed in me? Am I going to hurt their feelings? Are they going to get mad at me? So this is the kind of, there's almost like a 
very low tolerance for any kind of social or interpersonal stress. Right. And, and that's what um, I think of when I think of it, that's what the myth of harmony is about. And so this good girl myth is really about reclaiming the voice and being able to set boundaries with our voice, either speaking up more often and giving people feedback and also being direct with our boundaries, being able to say no, that's what I think of. And, and being able to speak up, like one of the, you know, most concrete examples I give about the myth of harmony, it's so small, but I think a lot of women can relate to it is like, if you're getting a massage and the masseuse is like, okay, well, let me know if I ever, you know, am pressing too hard. Right. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I know that I have where maybe the masseuse does press too hard. And for whatever reason, you're in this like space where you're having a conversation in your mind. Like, should I tell them that (laughs) I I want less pressure? (laughs) Like, you know, and it's such a small example. And, but even I like to give that example because it's relatable, but you know, times that by another context, like you're in a meeting and it's time to speak up and you're having a conversation in your head. Like, should I interrupt right now? Should I say something about this? And maybe your heart is beating really fast and you're starting to sweat just at the idea of speaking up even before you've started to speak up, you know, and times that by, you know, even more, it's like, you're in a toxic relationship with someone, maybe it's with a partner, with a friend, and they have just um, crossed over a boundary in a way that doesn't sit well with you. And you're also having that conversation in your mind of, should I put my foot down and say, this is enough. You know, so there's yeah. a spectrum of, <laughs> but it's the same underlying mechanism of using the voice and finding the courage to speak, regardless of how the other person is going to respond. Because guess what? You can't control how the other person is going to respond. It's Patricia Carpus, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. I I think the idea that this is a spectrum is so important because we might think of the big stuff that's hard, but that little stuff is just as important, probably more insidious, probably more common. And and I think on the flip side is if we can start to recognize those small things, and I have absolutely had that experience of being asked, how's the pressure? And always just saying, it's fine, even mm-hmm. when it's not fine. Mm-hmm. And you know that if we can start to learn how to speak up in those smaller, safer, more benign situations, then that may give us a better ability to kind of build that muscle to work up to some of those more tricky situations. Yes, exactly. And the muscle we're we're building is the ability to sit with our own discomfort of, wow, that person's disappointed in me right now. (laughs) You know, it's like on a bigger scale, I had a woman go through my group program and she was like, she wants to start a business. She's working at a nine five at a big tech company. And she wants to launch her food business. And she's like, well, what if my, what do I do if my family feels disappointed in me? that I'm not, that I'm going to be doing this career pivot. And I mean, this woman is in her thirties, forties, and she's asking this question. And it's like a real question. They may actually feel disappointed in her. They may be silent about it, or they may express that disappointment. And so how does she do the internal work of sitting with the discomfort of, wow, yeah, other people don't like the decision I made about my life. Right. And that, that example also seems like it dovetails with the myth of rules. Yes. It do, it feels like it's both of those things that she has these rules that she's following and pivoting is like breaking a rule. And there's this added layer of what if these other people who have expectations that I'll follow the rules are disappointed. Exactly. It, it, I'm so glad you just made that little link because you're right. It's exactly the myth of rules is all about following external authority uh, system, basically the path that's been laid out instead of trusting what you want, what you want to do. And, you know, for her, it had always been like, I go to school and then I get a job and I work 
and this is how it goes. And so to deviate from that was, you know, was risky and what felt edgy to her. And it's, that's totally normal. If you're listening right now and it feels that way that it's supposed to, there's supposed to be a degree of discomfort in, in choosing change. Well, I love the way you talk about, let me see if I get it. Was it the edge of discomfort Mm -hmm. that you, something with an edge where you're, you know, the The inside is the edge. The vulnerability edge. Yes. Yes. There's like, if you picture a circle, the inside is your comfort zone and that's not where growth happens. But if you go too far outside of your comfort zone, you, you may end up paralyzed and overwhelmed, but that if you think about the, the outline of the circle, that's the vulnerability edge where you can do it and growth happens, but it's like not too much. Exactly. Your vulnerability edge is that uncomfortable sweet spot between the comfort and the growth and I think we can learn to thicken our skin a little bit by playing with this edge. And this is how we build creative confidence. So, you know, I was just speaking on a book club yesterday to a woman who was saying, you know, I really want to be more seen and heard, but I, my mind is on board. I have these visions of myself doing it, but my body feels really blocked. And so we we're talking about that. Oh, well, that clearly there's some fear in the system. Right. And so we kind of started to just plot different behaviors on a spectrum. Again, we're talking about a spectrum. What would be a really easy thing for her to do in terms of being seen and heard? And what would be a terrifying thing for her to do? So easy was like, I could show up to this book club and share about my business. Okay, great. Um, Medium is like, I could do an Insta story and talk about it. Like really terrifying is I'm doing an IG live and publishing it to YouTube and like every, and blasting it out to my family and friends and everybody knows I'm doing this, right? It's like, okay, well, let's play in the spectrum where you're not going to blow past your edge because what happens when we do that? The myth of perfection, this is what we're talking about. It like will paralyze us. It will cause us to procrastinate. It will cause us to resist it at all costs. So you really do want to find the sweet spot. You want to find that place right where it feels scary enough, but it's not paralyzing. That's the behavior you want to start to shape. And then you literally practice that bit by bit. It starts off with a blog post then it starts off with a, a trailer of your new podcast. Then it's do- doing a first interview and you're really shaping it so that you're being gentle with yourself. It's not like you're leaping into the unknown. I'm into leaps. I'm also into leaps, but I think I'm more into shaping and, and being, being gentle and allowing ourselves little steps to expand. I never tell a woman to quit her job, you know, to start something I'm like, Hey, you know, you can continue to stay at, at your job and prototype this idea on the side. And then once you gain a certain level of confidence, then you transition. Yeah. I think what's great about doing this in this kind of like gradual build up sort of way is that with each step, you're gaining a sense of mastery and that increases your willingness a little bit more to do the next scary thing. And you talk about how the vulnerability edge expands outward as you continue to do those things. And it reminds me a lot of, I'm a psychologist and do anxiety work and we do exposure therapy, which is just facing your fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it works to jump off the deep end. And like, you know, if you're afraid of sharks, you can go swim in a tank with sharks who can't get you. Of course, you know, it has to be safe exposure, but typically people want to start with something that feels a little more manageable and a little less scary. And it allows them to build that sense of success and mastery. And of course, new learning is happening, you know, like you're learning that whatever this, the bad thing is you think is going to happen because you go do an IG live or whatever the task is, typically it doesn't happen. Or mm-hmm. even if it does, it's never as bad as your mind convinces you it's going exactly. to be and yeah. you can handle it. Mm-hmm. So I think with each of those steps up that ladder, you know, people are learning a lot about themselves and their competence and that all the ca- catastrophic things our brains like to convince us are right around the corner that like maybe those thoughts don't quite match up with our actual experience once we stop avoiding and let ourselves experience those things. Absolutely. And we can survive. We can survive yeah. rejection. We can survive other people's judgments. We can survive their negative disapproval or disappointment. If that were to come, those are things we can survive. 
you know, and to be able to grow, you know, another analogy is muscle building. Like you need to create little tears in your muscle for it to grow stronger. I like to think of that when I think about creative confidence building is like when I, with women who go through my program, for example, I'm, I'm kind of a, I like to say fierce mama bird. I'm like, Hey, go outreach and see who's going to bite and go express yourself and you will get rejected. (laughs) And that will be part of the process and, and sit with that and, and let that be a little tear in the muscle because that's how the muscle is going to grow stronger. And the the courage and bravery is going to grow stronger. I love that. That's such a great metaphor. That's perfect. I shouldn't say perfect. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the myth of perfection. (laughs) Sure. This is my number one. This is my primary good girl myth. This is all about feeling like we're not doing enough or we're not good enough. And this really manifests as performance. Like I want to perform at a high level in every single area of my life. And I want to be an achiever and I want to be like the best you know, author, the best business person, the best wife, the best, you know, like there's this like Mm -hmm. sense of like needing to just excel (laughs) all areas where it's not really sustainable or realistic because life is full of trade-offs and we really can only excel in one or two life areas at a given time. And, and so I think that the good girl myth of perfection, what it's really covering up is our vulnerability, our authenticity, And that creative confidence we were just talking about, because we are really just demanding perfection in ourselves and others in a way that is mm, not in tune with life and reality. (laughs) Life is full of mistakes. Life is messy. Life is complicated, you know? And it seems like it's really coming from a place of needing external validation and not really thinking from the inside out in terms of what kind of life do I want to have? What kind of person do I want to be? It's more about like living up to some external unattainable yardstick. Yes, exactly. A measuring stick that's been imposed on us from patriarchy, but also capitalism, which is like, Hey, let's get to the top of the mountain and let's create, you know, and there we're in a system you're born, you're born I don't know if you think you're born as a blank slate, probably not. (laughs) I mean, that's a big debate, but you're definitely, you're definitely born into the state of the world, which is not a blank state. (laughs) You're born into Mm -hmm. variety of systems. And, and so we're kind of as adults coming to terms with that, like, oh my God, I'm born in white supremacy. Well, that's not really, (laughs) that's not going to work. Oh my God, I'm born in patriarchy. I'm born in capitalism. Like, how do I look at these things inside of myself? That's what I can control. So looking at it within. Right. Right. And the myth of perfection, as I was reading through that whole chapter, I just kept thinking so much about imposter syndrome, which is another big interest of mine and something that I'm currently writing a book about. And, you know, I think they map on so much in that people and many, it's like up to 70% of people experience that imposter syndrome any minute, someone's going to find out I'm a fraud and that it's trying to outrun those feelings. And one of the ways of trying to do that is by trying to be perfect. Yes. You know, of course, yes, to backfire. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, and, and imposter syndrome is so related to belonging, like feeling like we don't belong, you know, and I talk about how that my good girl, we all have different reasons for developing our good girl archetype. And for me, it had to do with not feeling like I belonged. I felt like an imposter being from a different culture, born in a different culture, coming into a new culture. And so we all have ways we feel like we don't belong. And so the myth of perfection hooks right into that. Uh, it's very related to imposter syndrome. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider making a values-based donation on Patreon. Even a small contribution helps us with some of our expenses. You could think of it as taking a co-host out for a cup of coffee. And you can link to Patreon on our website or just search for us on patreon.com. Talk a little bit about the myth of logic. This felt like it was kind of the the newest idea mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the myth of logic, what do you mean by the newest? I'm so curious about that. The least familiar. Yes. Yes. It's the one I was that like last week, I I also did a book club with a group of 
of lawyers. A lot of them had the myth of logic, which was fascinating because I usually don't meet a lot of women with this as their primary myth. Uh huh. Yeah. So the myth of logic is, I, I have this as it's a really, really strong inside of me. This was the hardest chapter for me to write. It was the one that I procrastinated. And it's basically when we follow our mind and intellect over our body and intuition. And we've just been, maybe we were raised to be like really smart, book smart, math smart. And these are all amazing things that really help us function in society and are very well needed. But as a result, we're so in the head and we've been divorced from a deeper intelligence that exists in our bodies, such as imagination, intuition. And so for me, it was really about like, oh, it's interesting, especially in the education system, how it it stokes the myth of logic from a very young age. And just, we just favor left brain over right brain kinds of thinking and favor, you know, things like analytical and critical thinking over, (laughs) over other forms of more divergent. And I think where, where girls and women are kind of trained here early on is that we're supposed to be nice and polite and don't be rude and don't hurt anyone's feelings. And, you know, you hear stories of women who have experienced trauma who will say like, I knew in my gut something wasn't right, but I didn't want to be rude. Yes, And that, you know, like from an early age, we're just trained. I mean, even more like contemporary, you now sometimes hear that people have kind of, (laughs) what am I trying to say? People have gotten on board with this idea that like, okay, if a kid doesn't want to hug grandma, like your body, your rules, you decide. And if that doesn't feel comfortable for you, then you shouldn't have to do it. But that is very new. Mm. And, you know, for Mm -hmm. me growing up, like that's rude. If your family members want to hug you and kiss you and smoosh you and have you on their lap, then dang it, you complied with that. Otherwise you're being rude. And I think those kinds of messages are related to the myth of logic where you learn early on that you're just supposed to ignore those gut intuitive kinds of feelings that are in your body. Absolutely. Because in the patriarchy, the message we've been told is simple. Like feelings and emotions are weakness. You know, we mm-hmm. shame boys and men by calling them girls when they express sadness or anxiety. And then we shame women telling them they're crazy, hysterical, overreacting you know, to forms of dominance or violence. Like, so it's, it's everywhere. It's super, super loud. And it's, it's dangerous because it can lead to not only living a life that's not in alignment, but in some cases it can lead to death. If we don't listen to our intuition and our instinct. Yeah. I just had a client tell me a horrifying story where thank goodness she did listen to her intuition because this crazy chain of events occurred where had she and a friend of hers not been listening, she was quite certain that there were men who were in the process of trying to essentially kidnap and traffic them. Wow. Yeah. And it was only because she was really paying attention to those like hairs on the back of her neck going up. And even though like there wasn't necessarily like the most logical reasoned reason to just like up and leave, they did. And I was so relieved and so proud of her for, for listening to that voice inside because so many of us don't. Such a good example. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So let's talk about the myth of sacrifice. And I think this is one that moms especially are, it's going to resonate with them. Yes. So the myth of sacrifice sounds like I should prioritize the needs of others before my own. And it really looks like the tendency to put others, people's needs above your own. But here's the catch often at the expense of your own self-care or well-being. So I say the powers you need to reclaim are your time and energy, which add up to your contribution and destiny. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, there's so much mom guilt. We know that like, Moms are blamed and criticized for every little thing, whereas a dad can take a kid to a park and be be given an award for being the greatest dad on the planet, you know? And so I think this is a tough one to deal with when like, Mm -hmm. you know, your values say, I really want to be a great mom or, or maybe outside of parenting too, of course, like if it's in your working domain, if it's as a partner, 
and that it feels like you have to sacrifice in order to be that way. And oh my goodness, if you dared to put your own needs above others, you know, there's just that inner critic gets so loud and the guilt and the shame. And what this really reminded me of is someone else that I interviewed on the podcast was Eve Rodsky, who wrote the book Fair Play which I just think is revolutionary. And I've been trying to get all of my women friends on board. And, you know, what I've noticed is that when, and fair play is all about equal distribution of labor at home. Mm-hmm. And what has happened for me is that since my, it took a long time, but since my husband and I were able to truly get equality in our home, I have been freed up to be able to pursue my professional and personal dreams, my dreams and aspirations and hobbies. And it has made such an enormous difference to the quality of my life. And and I feel like this myth is so, so important. And like also maybe one of the hardest ones for women to like, to really reclaim their, their time. Like, like you said. Yeah. I love that. I love that you made a structural change in your marriage so that you could free up time for yourself because that's really what we need to reclaim is time because creativity needs time dreaming needs time like being able to give our contributions needs needs time and i do want to say again caveat like for some women they really feel extremely aligned and clear that their purpose is to be a mother and so they want to dedicate all their time to that and i think that's beautiful and i think that the invitation again is to make sure that we are choosing and not defaulting because it's what we've inherited or it's because we see what other people do, or it's because it's what's expected of us, but to really say, okay, like, how do I make this work for me? Like for some women, mother is one identity of many identities that they want to have, you know, another identity might be artist, another identity might be author, writer. And so they are, they want to have the room to express those other identities, And for some women, which is perfectly amazing, is fine, is, hey, I know that this is my central identity or my central purpose right now, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And I just want to make sure to highlight that because because I think there's a lot with feminism, there's been a lot of like maybe looking down at at stay-at-home moms. And it's like, that's really not what we have feminism for. <laughs> really. No, absolutely. It's about choosing. Like yeah. I get to do what I want to do and it has nothing to do with what you think I should do. Exactly. But I think even for women who choose to be home and have motherhood be a central role that often like what that should also be a Monday through Friday, nine to five job. Like there, there's this external rule and pressure that like, when you're a mom, you have to be a mom 24 seven, but no one else does their job 24 seven. That's and, such a good you know, point. Thanks. That's a great point. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that's, you know, that like maybe nights and weekends, the childcare, the housework, whatever it is can be shared. And, you know, that's assuming that someone has a partner at home. And of course that's not everybody's situation, but to, to be able to reclaim that time and not feel like you have to be on and doing and working 24 seven in a way that maybe isn't exactly what you're choosing. Yeah. And that's so relates to boundaries. How do you set those boundaries, which ties back to the myth of harmony so nicely, because, you know, what's the difficult conversation you need to have with your children and or spouse to free up that weekend for yourself, you know? Right. And what, you know, and in some, you don't know how they're going to respond. There could be a spectrum of response from, you know, go for it, mom, to, you know, to disappointment, to thrashing, like anything could, you know what I mean? So to again, going back to sitting with the discomfort of when we make a request, it might not necessarily be well-received at the beginning and things take time. And right. Just, we may need know. to have that conversation many times, many ways. Exactly. And exactly. to be able to sit through that, that frustration that it didn't go exactly the way that you had hoped that first time and kind of like trial and adjustment a little bit as you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, that brings up, you have a, a fascinating way that you talk about. I think it's one of the things, um, one of the many things that makes the book unique is you have this really cool way of breaking the good girl myths by applying design thinking, you know, based on your, your background at Stanford. So can you talk about this a little bit? Like, Mm -hmm. so if I'm under this myth of harmony and I want to change, like, 
where do I start? How do you, how do you lay out these design principles to help people make changes? Yes. So design thinking is something I learned at the Stanford Design School. It was really impactful to me in terms of unwinding perfectionism because design thinking helps you bring an idea into form. That sounds very abstract, but it's the ability to make anything. And one of the ways that designers do this is through prototyping. So designers give themselves permission to be extremely messy and experimental and play with materials and throw things out. They're not precious about anything. And learning that method really helped me build creative confidence and is pretty much the cornerstone of my coaching right now with women is, hey, building creative confidence through prototyping and design, prototyping your dream and expanding that vulnerability edge. And so the design thinking has these really interesting key mindsets that I weave in throughout the book under all the myths. So the first is seeking deeper understanding, which has to do with empathy. Empathy is the foundation of all design. So I'll go through them real quick. And the second is open your mind. So this is really about being able to generate options and think outside the box. So thinking more creatively. The third is my favorite. It's make something. That's like Mm -hmm. prototyping. Fourth is engaging someone that has to do with asking for feedback and giving feedback. And the fifth is setting yourself up for success. So these are design thinking principles, mindsets that help uh, counteract the good girl myths. So in the case of the myth of harmony, I really invoke the fourth mindset, which is engage someone. Really being able to ask for feedback from a friend, acquaintance, total stranger in a way that might make us feel vulnerable, but it's key to us for discovering, carving a path, you know, in the same way, being able to give feedback and use our voice instead of staying quiet on a subject. That's really key to having healthy relationships. I learned this feedback culture from design thinking. And I think that that's really powerful in thinking about the myth of harmony. Yeah. Well, it's really cool the way that this is laid out in the book, because there are little spots where you get to practice this and write down examples. And, you know, I think we always think we can just do this in our head. We can just read and we can just think about it. But when I sat down and really wrote these things down, it was so incredibly powerful and brainstorming was really fun. And then (laughs) this idea of prototyping was brand new to me. And it was you know, you're talking about like the more smaller things you do, the better, you know, that you're going to figure out what works and what doesn't. And the idea that like, if you want to write, this was the example I was thinking of, like, if I want to write a book, I can start with a blog or just a social media post, you know, that you can break it down into these kind of small bits and pieces and figure out like what works and what doesn't before you ever even think about launching into this really big project. And you give an example in the book of a client who wanted to start a podcast and how you can do a three-minute prototype by audio recording this on your phone voice recorder. And there was just something so freeing Mm -hmm. about reading this and practicing this like, oh my gosh, like anyone could have any really big dream or goal or aspiration and get started right now in these small ways. And I think it makes it seem so much less overwhelming and like to have permission to break these rules in small ways and see how it goes. I just, I thought it was so cool. And I really highly recommend that people get the book. We've gotten just like a little bit of an overview of all this with Maho today. And I just thought that it was so empowering and useful and really informative for sure. Mm, Thank you for reflecting that. I think prototyping is ability to, to fail fast you know, and not be precious and, and eliminate process of elimination. Like, okay, no, that didn't work. Let me move on to the next thing. So it breaks perfectionism. It's a perfect antidote to perfectionism. Now, do you, can you think of an example of like a big rule that you've broken that has changed your life for the better? A big rule? Yeah. Like any, anything inside these myths, like something where you've broken free of the myth that's like changed your life for the better. Yeah. So in, you know, with the good girl myths, you can see them apply to different life areas. So for the myth of rules, I'll talk about two different life areas that I feel like I've broken this good girl myth. So the first is in my career. I was, you know, daughter of immigrants and totally expected to get a PhD in like 
obtain the highest degree of education possible, if not an MD, because <laughs> my, my dad was an MD and a master's. And the idea was like, okay, you're in order to succeed, like immigrant mentality, immigrant unspoken rule from immigrant mentality was like, you're going to get the highest degree of education possible. And, you know, telling my parents like, Hey, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to get my PhD. I'm going to, you know, start a business to them. It was like, what are you talking about? And especially since it was like a business in like personal and professional growth for women, they were like very confused. And so having to have that conversation with them and, and, you know, of like, yeah, I'm going to be deviating from the expectations that you've had of me and sitting with any disappointment that they felt initial disappointment, they got over it. And now they understand what I do and they came around. So that would be like the first the second is in a diff, totally different life areas with my husband. I actually, it's a little story anecdote that I include in the book, but I proposed to my husband <laughs> and, funny. and, you know, there's always been this expectation, of course, that the man gets down on one knee and he has the ring prepared and he, he proposes. And I, I we had been together for five years and I just had this feeling of like, I want to marry this man. I have this desire and I want to act on it. Like men have centuries before me. <laughs> you know? And so it just felt very natural to propose to him. And he took it fabulously. He like very much said, yes, he loved it. And it was flipping a very, you know, a gender norm, a gender script that, that people have in heterosexual relationships, right? Yeah. But this is how it goes. This is how you do it. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty badass. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. I love it. Well, I had this interesting realization. I think I've been breaking lots of rules as I've been getting older and in middle age, you know, I and my co-hosts, we all practice a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's very well aligned with the book in that it's all about choice and living a life that's based on your most deeply held personal values, and then learning how to change your relationship to the thoughts and feelings that often stand in the way of doing that. And so I live that in my own life and that's helped me to break a lot of rules. But I recently had this experience where I was talking to my dad about work stuff and I said something about writing a third book and something came up about how, you know, I can't, I can't, can't quit my day job. Like you're, you know, you're not going to make enough money to support my family as a writer. And he said, well, you don't do it for the money. And I said, no, I don't. I mean, I do it because I absolutely love it, but truth be told, I wish that it paid all the bills and I, then I could just do that. And he said, oh, but why you're such a good psychologist, you know, like you're, you're so good. It's essentially like you, but you're so good at this traditional career thing that you've been doing for so long. And like, but a writer is like an artist and you're going to just go be an artist. I mean, and I, I'm, inter I'm interpreting here. He didn't say those things, but it triggered so much in me that made mm -hmm. me feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not being a good girl. Like, yes, I'm supposed to go do my traditional safe, secure job. And like, it's not okay to go do this creative thing as your main job. And just the fact that I, I mean, it made me re really uncomfortable, like not, I wasn't angry at him. It was just so interesting to observe that like, he's following certain rules. I'm following certain rules. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I still have some work to do here. I think I've been doing pretty well, but you know, when it comes to the myth of harmony piece, and then maybe some of these other things that, it's, it made me think kind of more of the myth of logic, yeah. Um, yeah, right? Because yeah. I felt like my, that creative inspiration and like, I feel in my body, like when I get in the zone, mm -hmm. that's when I'm writing, but mm -hmm. I've been taught for so long, like, no, 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 no. Like you ignore those things and go do this traditional, follow the rules and do this traditional path. And like that just happened, you know, maybe two weeks ago or something. So I just mm -hmm. thought it was so interesting. I had that experience while I was reading the book. <laughs> yeah, that's really powerful. And I could so relate to that, you know, and I think our culture also doesn't really value artists, you know, yeah. and yeah. our culture has the artists at the bottom of the totem pole. So it's like aligning ourselves with that is risky and uh, might bring us and the stories and the narratives we've had, which some of which have been true and have been reinforced by some data, like that 
artists are, you know, it's, it's factually true that it is hard to make money in this society as an artist. You know, that's like, absolutely true. So like facing the music with that and yet being able to express our artistry in different ways through, through books, through psychology, through this podcast, through this conversation, like clearly you're, you're so artful in, in conversation, you know, in the art of transitions and seeing connections, like there's so much, there's so much there. It's just an expression of who you are. Absolutely. And I think that's where I've been the most lit up in recent years is when I'm doing things that are creative and it's a, there's this expanded definition, just like you said, to me, the podcast is being creative. It's not just about, you know, painting, which I don't do or playing music, but that there are many ways to be creative. And I think that that gets kind of squashed, like you were saying, you know, right right away in school, it's all about math and, you know, Mm -hmm. more STEM rather than steam. Mm -hmm. And that it's, that one of the things we can do if we're breaking some of these myths is to reclaim that, whatever that is for us, like what does it mean to be creative in our own lives? Even if, you know, if that can be in business, that can be in many different areas. And I think it can be so fulfilling and just like soul filling, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just wanted to acknowledge you for having the awareness with the conversation with your father and just seeing that dynamic play out because I think there is something there for you. And like having that, just to have that awareness that you were triggered and that, Oh, like here's someone who has a sense of rules and I have a sense of rules and we're playing on each other, you know? Right. And it's, it's a self-reinforcing loop and that's literally how culture spreads. Yeah. And that yeah. awareness really is, you can't change anything until you're aware of it. And, and I think the book definitely, that's one of the things I think it does is really opens your eyes and helps you to start being more aware of the way these myths may be playing out and then really kind of provide a direction to be able to think about breaking free and, and really living the life that you want to live. Mm-hmm. So we're just about out of time. I have one last question that I think is important because I think sometimes when people hear these things, they almost get a little discouraged. Like there's so much work to do and so much to change. But at the end of the book, you talk about integration and how there are actually some benefits to these rules. So can you talk just briefly, like, you know, if people are feeling discouraged, maybe to make listeners feel a little better that like, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not all bad. Exactly. I think it's about when you accept these good girl myths, they start to change from that shadow side, negative side into a positive side. And then we can draw on them in certain contexts. So we have more range, we have more freedom. They're like little powers that we can draw on. So if you're someone with a good girl myth of rules, for example, which is what we were just talking about, one of the strengths that I see underlying the good girl myths of of rules and when it's well integrated is learning and creativity. Because you're able to adapt really quickly and you are able to draw on this good girl myth when you're trying to understand how a system works or an organization works so that it can be innovated on. So it's really a great, I think for the myth of rules, it's really the strength there is learning and creativity. For the myth of perfection, it's excellence and quality. Mm. And the myth of logic is investigation and discovery. And the myth of harmony is nurturing relationships and peace. That is certainly a superpower that we need more of in our society and world. So, and for the myth of sacrifice, it's really being able to, we need sacrifice in order to plan for the future in a way that's aligned with our values. So what are we sacrificing today to be able to provide more for future generations? And so that's really important quality. And I think that, yeah, that makes so much sense. And, and I think like the line between where is this beneficial and where does this have a cost all comes back to choice. It's like Mm -hmm. awareness and then conscious, deliberate choice about what you're doing and the role you're playing rather than just this autopilot reaction to these rules that have been set forward by the patriarchy. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. (laughs) Love it. Well, I also wanted to just point out that you have a number of exercises, like different meditations. There's an intuition exercise from the myth of logic chapter. I mean, there's so many that are really cool, pretty brief, but powerful. 
And I think it's, it's mahomeditation.com, right? And is that available to anyone? Yeah, it yeah, is. So you don't even have to buy the book for those. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, so that's available. And then, yeah, if you go to my website too, mahomolfino.com, there's so many little goodies. I have a really fun, I have another quiz that uh, will reveal your creative feminine power. So the flip sides, they touch on the the conversation we just had, um, the flip side of the good girl myths. And yeah, there you can explore about the book, my podcast, my blog, so many things. I love it. Yes. And you're, you've had some pretty badass women on your podcast, which is, which is great. So everybody check it out at mahomolfino.com. Thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. And again, I told you before we started recording that I truly read this book cover to cover, which I don't always get the time to do for every single guest I have on the podcast. And I was just really drawn in and hooked and found it so useful. So I hope people check it out. Thanks, Jill. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.